Welcome to Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert, a podcast sponsored by the Healing Lives Center. Discover how to love and lead your family well and biblically. God created sex, marriage, and the family for our stewardship, growth, and benefit. My heart and passion is to teach, train, educate, and disciple Christians that want strong marriages and families. The Healing Life Center has been serving Christians since the year 2000. Its mission is to be a center for sex, trauma, and marriage education and transformation, where we offer counseling, coaching, courses, and speaking services to you, your church, or ministry. Check us out at HealingLives.com. Welcome back. We're looking at Chapter 6. Now, we're looking at Chapter 6 of Lost in Transnation, a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist guide out of the madness, Dr. Grossman. And so previous episodes went through previous chapters and the uh, introduction from Jordan Peterson, but this one is uh, revealing, let's just say the least. There's going to be a lot of quotes and a lot of things that we're going to have to look at uh, to understand Chapter 6, a, du- a, dan- a dangerous Dutch idea. So what is the Dutch protocol? That's what we're going to look at today. Um, again, I hope this helps you see how we got here and, and um, start shaping, you know, basically what we do next. What do we do? So uh, chapter six, a dangerous Dutch idea. So remember Jamie Reed in the previous one? Uh, her testimony begs the question, from where did the model of affirming one-size-fits-all treatment of adolescents with gender dysphoria come? It's based on a small study from Holland that led to what's known as the Dutch protocol. So what is this Dutch protocol? In the Netherlands, sex reassignment was available for adults since 1972. So the number of patients was limited and almost all were middle-aged men. So think about that with what we've already seen so far. For their work and research in this highly specialized field, a few Dutch clinicians achieved worldwide prominence. Following their patients over time, they discovered that they had significant mental health issues, including suicidality. Perhaps, researchers thought, because the men had gone through male puberty and had masculine bone structure, muscle mass, hair growth, and voices, it was therefore difficult to pass as women. So the Dutch researchers had an idea. There's that idea again. Identify kids with gender dysphoria, uh, and this is really hard, that will probably persist to adulthood, because you can't know that, but they speculate. Prevent their masculinization from puberty, then use estrogen and surgery to achieve a feminine appearance. So the doctors were well-intentioned. Um, perhaps puberty suppression of these extremely rare individuals would produce an improved quality of life. That was the goal. That is a good goal. But So the means to chemically prevent puberty already existed. Children with a medical condition called precocious puberty uh, begin sexual bone and muscular development early. Girls before the age of 8 and boys before 9. Because their premature development causes social and emotional difficulties, they are sometimes given a medication called a GnRH agonist, which acts on the brain to prevent the release of estrogen and testosterone from the ovaries and testicles. At the appropriate time, the medication is stopped, and with with time, puberty resumes. So as discussed in Chapter 3, there's no way to determine with certainty which children will persist with gender distress. Dutch hypothesized that those with severe dysphoria from very early childhood whose conditions worsened into mid-adolescence would most likely remain gender dysphoric the rest of their lives. Uh, Incorrectly so. Researchers started administering puberty blockers to 111 such youth at at an average age of 15. Cross-sex hormones roughly at age 17 and breast and genital surgeries around the age of 19. The patients also received ongoing psychological support. An article 
about their experimental inter interventions was published in 2006, supported financially by Faring Pharmaceuticals, the manufacturer of triptorolin, a puberty blocking agent. In 2014, the researchers published groundbreaking claims. Puberty suppression and surgeries were associated with marked reduction or resolution of gender dysphoria, improved mental health, and overall functioning. Their guidelines became known as the Dutch Protocol, and the ONE study is the basis for all gender-affirming care, including, of course, the care on which Jamie Reed blew a whistle. Salivating Doctors Michael Biggs, a professor of sociology at Oxford, recently undertook a comprehensive investigation of the Dutch study. Published in 2022, he describes its history, claims, and rapid international adoption. Biggs writes that in the mid to late 90s, two of the Dutch researchers were elected to the board of directors of the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, later called WPATH, in 2001, more than a decade before the Dutch experiment's results were published, puberty suppression entered WPATH's standards of care. One would think the recommendation for a non-FDA-approved medication acting on the brains of children with no medical illness would have been founded um, not on gold, but platinum-quality evidence. But I learned from Dr. Biggs that was not the case at all. The only published evidence in 2001 for the benefits of puberty suppression was a case study of one patient. F.G. were the initials. The Dutch protocol arrived in the U.S. in 2007 when Harvard-affiliated pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Norman Speck co-founded the Gender Management Special, uh, Service at Boston's Children's Hospital, which was the first dedicated clinic for gender dysphoric children in the U.S. His program was based on the Dutch model. The hospital sent a psychologist to Amsterdam for training. From the outset, the Boston Clinic offered puberty blockers with no minimum age. Specific, uh, specifying only that the child reach Tanner stage two, marked by the first growth of pubic hair and for girls by uh, budding breasts and for boys by growing testicles. As reported in 2015 by the New York Times, Dr. Spack recalled being at a meeting in Europe 15 years earlier when he learned that the Dutch were using puberty blockers in early adolescence. He recalled, I was salivating. I said we had to do this. That's creepy. Why were all these doctors in a hot rush? I, the author of this book, Dr. Grossman, propose they share Dr. Money's approach. I have an idea. Let's do this to patients and see what happens. Creepy. SPAC joined three Dutch researchers on the Endocrine Society's committee tasking, tasked with writing their first clinical guidelines for transsexual persons, the earlier term of transgender persons. In 2009, the ES recommended puberty suppression for children in early puberty. So as early as 2009, doctors, clinics, hospitals, and drug companies could point to prestigious organizations like WPATH, ES, and Boston Children's and say, quote, puberty suppression is an internationally accepted treatment for children with gender dysphoria. Not. The assumption was based on the Dutch study that was seriously flawed. So here's an important word, replicability. This means obtaining the same results when an experiment is repeated, it is foundational to medical research. The Dutch study has never been replicated. Clinicians in London tried from 2011 to 14. 44 teens were given blockers. Results were presented in the 2016 WPATH conference. The patients, patients didn't do well. But the bad news wasn't publicized, as Biggs explains. 
these conference papers were not published as articles following the typical fate of medical experiments that failed to produce positive results. The results were published, Biggs explained, only in 2021 as a result of a protracted campaign involving media publicity, complaints to the ethics committee that approved the research and a judicial, uh, judicial review. For the London cohort, puberty suppression brought, on, brought no measurable benefit nor harm to psychological function to these young people, and gender dysphoria likewise did not improve. The failure to reproduce the Dutch study um, was only one of the many red flags. Along with Biggs' paper, um, others provide insight into the flaws and widespread adoption of the Dutch protocol in a 2023 paper entitled The Myth of Reliable Research in Pediatric Gender Medicine, a critical evaluation of the Dutch studies and research that has followed. They discuss run, uh, runaway diffusion, the phenomenon whereby the medical community mistakes a small innovative experiment as a proven practice in a potentially non-beneficial or harmful practice escapes the lab, rapidly spreading in general clinical setting, which is what's happened here. Runaway diffusion, I quote there, for, uh, quoting from, from this, is exactly what has happened in pediatric gender medicine. Affirmative treatment, i.e. the Dutch protocol, rapidly entered gen general clinical practice worldwide without the necess necessary rigorous clinical research to confirm the hypothesized robust and lasting psychological benefits of the practice. Nor was it ever demonstrated that the benefits were substantially enough to outweigh the burden of lifelong dependence on medical interventions, infertility and sterility, and various physical health risks. The speed of the runaway diffusion accelerated exponentially when pediatric gender dysphoria went from a relatively rare phenomenon before 2015 to one that impacts as many as 1 in 10 to 20 young people in the Western world. Wow. A small innovative experiment is mistaken by the medical community as a proven practice and it escapes the lab. Sounds like John Money and the twins again. So scrutinizing, let's look at this Dutch protocol. The authors describe numerous flaws in the Dutch study and submit its results are not applicable to today's teens and young adults. Aside from the failure to replicate results mentioned above, they point to poor research design, bias, confounding variables, and lack of control group. So these are some points that they say kind of crit critiquing it. A careful selection process skewed the sample population toward the most clinically straightforward and stable cases. 111 subjects were chosen, but the number was whittled down to 70, then 55, in doing so, the researchers excluded patients who stopped the treatment, refused to participate in the follow-up, developed serious medical problems, or had complicated personal situations for Dr. Levine. As a result, key outcomes were available for as few as 32 patients of the 111. One of the subjects excluded was killed by necrotizing fasciitis after vaginoplasty. So like Jazz, the 18-year-old's penis was too small due to puberty suppression, so an intestinal graft was needed to construct a vagina. Biggs points out a fatality rate exceeding 1% would surely halt any other experimental treatment on healthy teenagers. Patients with mental health issues such as Rosa were disqualified. The current demographic has high rates of psychiatric disorders and neurodivergence. All subjects had severe gender dysphoria, lifelong extreme and complete cross-gender identities like jazz, which worsened with puberty. Current demographic is characterized by sudden uh, adolescent onset like Rosa. All subjects received psychotherapy that could have led to improvement, not the medical treatments. In today's GAC therapy, 
is optional and considered potentially harmful. The Dutch assumed blockers are fully reversible. We know this is incorrect. The Dutch did not consider effects of blockers on physical health, libido, sexual development, attention to fertility was meager. The average age of starting blockers was 15. Currently, children as young as 8 are eligible. The scale used to measure gender dysphoria pre- and post-treatment was highly problematic. The claim of improved gender dysphoria, the linchpin of the protocol, could have been an artificial or me measurement of measurement error. The follow-up was premature. Medical complications and regret can take years. So regarding the study's strict mental health criteria, Reed pointed out the irony. Medical transition practice for children and adolescents is based on the Dutch study, which excluded patients, participants, who presented underlying mental health issues. But nearly all children who came to the center um, here presented with very serious mental health problems. Despite claiming to be a place where children could receive multidisciplinary care, the center would not treat these mental health issues. Instead, children were automatically given purity blockers or cross-sex hormones even though the Dutch study excluded persons experiencing mental health issues. Today, the Dutch protocol is a foundation for gender-affirming care, calling for medicalization of youth like Rosa and the patients Reed described. But with their psychiatric issues and recent onset of gender dysphoria, none of them would have met the Dutch study's criteria. They would all have been excluded. In 2021, Thomas Steensma was one of the primary authors of the Dutch studies seemed astonished that doctors assume their conclusions are applicable to today's youth with gender dysphoria. He, he's quoted, We don't know whether studies we have done in the past could still be applied to this time. Many more children are registering for transgender care and also a different type, he said. The rest of the world is blindly adopting our research. Anna Lou DeVry, another principal researcher, also expressed concern warning psychotherapy may be better than life-altering hormones in these situations. He's quoted, longer-term follow-up studies are needed to inform clinicians so that an individualized approach can be offered that differentiates who will benefit from the medical gender affirm affirmation and for whom additional mental health support might be more appropriate. So what about the claims of improved mental health? When examined closely, we discover they were minimal and only in certain categories. According to the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association, GEDA, of 30 psychological measures, there was no statistically significant improvement in nearly half of the measures, and the balance only evidenced, only evidenced small changes of questionable clinical relevance. Importantly, there was no improvement in anxiety, depression, and anger scores. In the words of Levine and his co-authors, it is impossible to determine whether gender reassignment therapy therapy or the psychological maturation that occurs with the passage of time led to these few modest improvements. Now here's a fascinating tidbit. Remember, due to the strict eligibility criteria, the subjects were serious with serious mental health or family problems were turned away. What happened to them? The rejects. Well, what do you know? Most people found ways to deal with their gender dysphoria and it diminished significantly. Only 22% had gender surgery as adults. Among those rejected from the study and medically untreated as adults, almost 80% were okay about having been rejected. Levine and his co-authors pointed out these findings. Raised the possibility that the majority of those rejected from hormonal interventions not only were unharmed but by waiting, but benefited from non-treatment with gender reassignment in adolescence. 
Unlike the medically and surgically treated subjects, the rejects completed uninterrupted physical and psychological development, avoided sterility, maintained their sexual function, eliminated their risk of iatrogenic harm from surgery, and avoided the need for decades of dependence on cross-sex hormones. Thousands of minors have been funneled through affirming clinics in the aftermath of the Dutch protocol, yet the Dutch didn't announce their long-term follow-up until 2022. The study had a response rate of only 50%, so a good number of negative outcomes likely went unrecorded. The follow-up study showed that in the early 30s, um, over half who responded were single, not unmarried, but without a partner at all an extremely high rate of singleness indicative of much larger issues. Nearly 60% were ashamed of their genital appearance. Significant numbers, 44% of females and 35% of males, regretted losing their fertility. Of the males who underwent the transition, three-quarters had problems with libido. Over 70% experienced pain during sex, and two-thirds had difficulty achieving orgasm. This unfortunate individuals, these unfortunate individuals aren't shining examples of success. Their lives are cautionary tales of the high price of denying biology. One statistic is especially compelling. 20% of respondents reported a change in identity over time. Remember, they, are all, they all had severe gender dysphoria from early childhood through mid-puberty. Nonetheless, their opposite sex identities were not fixed. So to repeat, one in five people who were gender dysphoric in early childhood and went through medical affirmation described a change in their self-perception over time. Does that mean they desisted or identified as non-binary instead of a woman or man? It's not clear. We must ask what will happen to today's cases who developed gender dysphoria in adolescence in response to stress and social contagion and how high a percentage will um, identify remain unstable and we don't know the answer to this. And the truth is, this is reckless and sloppy. So demonstrating the lack of consensus among professionals who treat gender dysphoria, psychologist Erica Anderson disclosed in an interview with Abigail Schreier that many transgender healthcare providers are treating kids recklessly. Ask if children in early puberty should be placed on blockers, a treatment considered standard of care by professional groups such as the uh, WPATH vaginoplasty surgeon Marcy Bowers, their incoming president, said, I'm not a fan. In the same interview, Anderson said, due to some of the, I'll call it just sloppy, sloppy healthcare work, we're going to have more young adults who will regret having gone through this process. Anderson elaborated on that word, sloppy. Rushing people through the medicalization and failure, abject failure, to evaluate the mental health of someone historically in current time and to prepare them for making such a life-changing decision. When you hear confident claims about the gender medical establishment claiming the science is settled, remember, the widespread use of puberty blockers and hormones is based on a study riddled with deficiencies and bias. Some of the original authors openly question why ROGD kids are being treated under um, their model, and two prominent advocates of gender-affirming care who themselves identify as transgender call it reckless and sloppy. So revealing. From her experience at the St. Louis Gender Clinic, Reed described how children are put on a medical assembly line. It begins with the elimination of comprehensive psychological evaluations. Elimination. Wow. So Reed says, A criterion to receive puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones is that the child have a letter of referral from a therapist. This requirement is supposed to ensure that two independent professional clinicians agree 
that medical transition is appropriate before a child is given medi medication that causes irreversible change. But nothing about this process at the center involved independent judgment. The center still children toward therapists that the center knew would refer these children back to the center with a letter supporting medical transition. The center had a list of therapists we would send children to and a therapist could be on that list only if the center knew they would say yes to medical transition. We also instructed the therapist what to say in their letters to us. I was instructed to draft and send language to the therapist for them to use in letters they can then send, send to us. And most therapists on the list had a template letter drafted by the center that they could just fill out and return to the center. The next stop was a single visit to the endocrinologist for a testosterone prescription, and that's all it took. A one-hour consultation with endocrinology or adolescent medicine is little more than a box-checking exercise. One hour is not sufficient time to fully assess these children. The center tells the public and parents that it makes individualized decisions. That is not true. Doctors at the center believe that every child who meets four basic criteria, age or puberty stage, therapist's letter, parental consent, and one-hour visit with the doctor is a good candidate for irreversible medical intervention. When a child meets these four simple criteria, the doctors always decide to move forward with puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. There, was, there are no objective medical tests uh, or criteria or individualized assessments. Gender-affirming care is the gold standard of pediatric gender care, the center's website claims. Gender-affirming care isn't meant to influence people in any particular direction. We don't treat anyone's identity or tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do. But Reed testifies here. I personally witnessed the center healthcare providers lie to the public and to parents of patients about the treatment or lack of treatment and the effects of treatment provided to children at the center. The center tells the public and parents that it provides multidisciplinary care. The center says that you can come to the clinic and get transitional hormones if, if that is needed, but you can also get psychological and psychiatric care. That is not true. The center placed such strict limits on psychiatry and psychology that I almost, I was almost never allowed to schedule patients for those practices. Even when psychology was available, it was only a right, uh, only to write a letter of support for the medical transition treatment and never for ongoing therapy. The public has been led to believe that a team has considered their child's care and that the team has ruled it best for the cross-sex hormones to be initiated, but the public was not told the truth. The center did have members who would advocate for different options for the patients with concern concerning gender histories, uh, concerning comorbidities and attempts to, to raise the serious concerns regarding patient care. Uh, patients and their parents, however, were never informed that the team did not have consensus on the treatment. The staff members on the team that were not uni universally in support of immediate cross-sex hormones were not supported and were told to stop questioning the prevailing narrative. That wasn't the only way the clinic misled the public. So here's some more about what the clinic was doing. Doctors know that cross-sex hormones immediately after puberty blockers make children permanently sterile. The doctors did not share this information with parents or children. Another disturbing aspect of the center was its lack of regard for the rights of parents and the extent to which doctors saw themselves as more informed decision makers over the fate of these children. The center downplayed the negative consequences and emphasized the need for transition. There are no reliable studies showing that this is helpful, it works. Indeed, the experiences of many of the center's patients prove how false their assertions are.
Yet a common tactic was for doctors to tell parents of a child assigned female at birth, and you've heard this already, you can either have a living son or a dead daughter. The clinicians would tell parents of a child assigned male at birth, you can either have a living daughter or a dead son. But these are false, based off false statistics. The clinicians would also malign any parent that was not on board with medicalizing their children. Uh, Reed continues, doctors at the center routinely pressured parents into consenting by pushing those parents, threatening them, and bullying them. The center has a teen culture of supporting the affirming parent and maligning the non-affirming parent. They were pressured into consent. Another scandal, scandal in London. While in St. Louis Clinic, or why the St. Louis Clinic placed their young patients on the path toward medical treatment, uh, scandal consumed Tavistock. We've heard this one already too. Um, in 2019, Marcus Evans resigned after serving as the Associate Clinical Director of Adult and Adolescent Services at Tavistock and wrote a scathing article. It was titled, Why I Resigned from Tavistock, Trans-Identified Children Need Therapy, Not Just Affirmation and Drugs. Gender care um, at GIDS, that's the, the Tavistock one, uh, he wrote, is influenced by a de facto censorship regime that is harming children. Parents were concerned children were fast-tracked through GIDS without any serious psychological evaluation. One in five staff members of the clinic had grave ethical concerns. In Evans' opinion, the very foundation of affirming care is unsound. When doctors always give patients what they want, or think they want, the fallout can be disastrous, as we have seen with the op opioid crisis. And there's every possibility that the inappropriate medical treatment of children with gender dysphoria may follow a similar path. Evan went further. He lamented that GIDS officials bought into the idea that transition is a goal unto itself, separate from the well-being of ind individual children who are now being used as pawns in an ideological campaign. This is the opposite of responsible and caring therapeutic work, which is based on the need to reestablish respectful but loving bonds between mind and body. Yeah, so much for the do no harm, right? And there's some more here about some more stuff going on in in, um, in London. You can read that later. Dr. Hilary Cass, former president of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, was appointed to perform an independent review of GIDS. She found serious deficiencies in provision of services, including the failure to gather evidence about comorbidities or long-term outcomes. Um, there's a diagnostic overshadowing. So once a patient declares gender dysphoria, all other mental health issues are overshadowed. Um, which is really a big deal. Reed didn't blow the whistle at once um, when she worked there. Going public, she said, would be putting myself at a serious personal and professional risk. Then she saw an article quoting the Admiral and knew she must act. Um, so um, while America embraces blockers, hormones, and surgery on demand, progressive nations in Western Europe and Scandinavia slam on the brakes. Britain planned to close GIDS in 2023. Sweden restricted medical interventions for minors after Leo's malpractice case. The Finland Health Authority made psychotherapy, not puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, the first-line treatment. The Norwegian Healthcare Investigation Board changed their guidelines. The Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists warned um, that psychotherapy first approach is um, the best protocol. Come to think of it, experiment is probably the, the best word she talks about. And she finishes, read, experiments are supposed to be carefully designed. 
hypothesis are supposed to be tested ethically. The doctors I worked alongside at the Transgender Center said frequently about the treatment of our patients. We are building the plane while we are flying it. No one should be a passenger on that kind of aircraft. Thank you for tuning in to the Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert podcast. It has been an honor to serve. If you are struggling, have questions, or in need, Dr. Gilbert offers a free consultation for new clients. Check us out at HealingLives.com to book a call. If this has been helpful to you, please share it, leave a review, and help us get the word out so that we can see lives changed, marriages transformed, and more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The Healing Lives Center offers online courses, programs, books, intensives, and other services to help you live biblically and well. Discover more resources on YouTube and in Dr. Gilbert's Healing Marriage Facebook group, The Healing Marriage.